0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula-exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. It might sound pretty cool to be frozen for a century or two and then thaw out to see what the future holds, but of course if everyone did that, their future wouldn't hold anything. Today we'll be examining the science and technology of freezing people and asking what the ramifications of it would actually be, if it became a regular and easy process. Of course at the moment it's neither regular nor easy. Even freezing people isn't very easy and that's supposed to be the easy part. Uh, Freezing people for later thawing and revival is a bit of a misnomer. What we're talking about in modern terms is taking the corpses of the already deceased and trying to freeze them for too much damage sets in, in a way that doesn't cause too much more damage during freezing itself. Indeed the main process focused on in these cases is vitrification, essentially turning the subject into a non-crystalline solid like glass, but we'll treat that as freezing today too, as we're not too interested in the specific procedures, just their impact on society if done successfully, for a given value of the world's success. The procedures are utterly lethal to anyone still alive doing it, and it frequently involves decapitation too. The intent is to preserve the brain well enough that we can repair or recreate it at a later date with access to superior medical technology. Since the alternative is death, if that gamble is wrong you're not out much, but it's also probably a good gamble, medical nanotechnology able to engage in cellular repair should be an invention in the 21st century. Of course that's the issue with cryonics, it's a technology that depends on assuming the invention of a future technology and one that would render it redundant. Cryonics is likely to be a growing industry as we get better at the procedure for freezing brains and more confident that medical nanotechnology able to engage in cellular repair will be successfully developed. Once it is though, your reasons for freezing dead people pretty much cease, as it's more likely the nanotechnology will be developed on and for the living first, significantly shrinking the cryonics customer base. This episode isn't too interested in the procedure itself, but the critical challenge for that is the complexity of cells. I think there tends to be an assumption that a biological cell is bigger than an atom, but in the same way a tree is bigger than a shrub. I've occasionally asked folks how many atoms they think are in a cell, and they tend to answer hundreds or thousands, and rarely hundreds of thousands or even millions. However, even the smaller cells are composed of more like a trillion atoms, and often a lot more. A human neuron can mass as much as a microgram, thousands of times more than a red blood cell, for instance. In context, if we think of an atom as a brick, a cell is not a house made of bricks, rather a small cell would be a large city while a larger cell would be an entire nation's buildings and infrastructure. Each of all cells is essentially a world to itself. If you flash-froze a city, you would not expect it to thaw out and be operational, but you would expect to be able to look at it while it was frozen and see what got damaged, like water mains exploding, pipes breaking, bridges and roads cracked and falling apart. You would figure you could repair that when it thawed out if you threw enough manpower at it, very different than if a city gets hit by an asteroid for instance. Key notion, freezing does damage but once frozen that damage ceases. You can put Humpty Dumpty back together again after he falls if he shatters into clean pieces and you don't give those too much time to scatter or wear down. You can't if Humpty Dumpty was incinerated and his ashes scattered to the winds. This is essentially the notion of cryonics. Each cell needs major repair, but you know what those cells should look like and they also aren't rearranging their location relative to each other. The task of repair is huge but doable, though of course it has to be done at the microscopic level. What you need is trillions of little walkers who can get in there and do the work, and that's where medical nanotechnology comes into play. There may be ways to freeze people with minimum cellular damage and to thaw them out and revive them, so their own regular healing mechanisms can finish the job. We've had limited but growing success freezing and thawing out other organisms, but the core of quantum Cryonics is the assumption we can eventually repair the frozen person with all those little robots. Critical thing though, is that if you've got all those little medical robots that can repair cells, your society really doesn't have nearly as many untreatable medical issues, so you don't need to freeze many people. It's also a lot easier for such robots to fix existing living but damaged cells, rather than repair ones frozen or vitrified. Particularly since your cells already have very good repair system, so cryonics might grow very popular as we get closer to that point and more folks feel like it represents a plausible way of extending life. But once you get to the point you can thaw people, you don't really need to freeze them for that reason anymore. They should effectively be able to self-repair any type of damage which wasn't overwhelming. So what does that leave as a reason for freezing? Well, interstellar spaceships is a popular suggestion, but we looked at that before in our sleeper ships episode. One critical note on that is that I'd have a hard time imagining us sending ships full of frozen colonists out, unless we already had that revival technology well developed. Space is immense, and while there may be a push to colonize quickly that might result in some risk taking, I can't really see anyone trying to claim the best worlds by getting to them first by sending out frozen colonists without a proven way to revive them yet. Though you might do that if our solar system was in imminent danger, as a last desperate gamble. And even then, only if you thought the thawing process you already had would work, since no one would be around to continue researching. If you have that technology, you don't really need to freeze them, as they're probably biologically immortal, and that same sort of technology tends to fix most of your supply issues in terms of producing, repaling, and recycling material on an interstellar ship. You might freeze folks to avoid boredom or to lower power usage, but you might just put them all into some non-frozen hibernation, especially for really long voyages you have to worry about radiation damage to the frozen body from the radioisotopes in your own body, like potassium-40, and if you're frozen there's no repair going on, certainly not biologically, uh, but probably not by little robots either. Indeed if you did have the robots working on your frozen body you would probably need to add extra cooling to make sure you stayed frozen. All that energy from them moving and drilling around your frozen cells is likely to thaw you out otherwise. Right now we freeze people's heads and discard their bodies in most cases, but you might do the opposite for ship hibernation, render the person brain dead or close to it while keeping the rest of the body pretty alive, so they didn't experience much time passing but their body was repaired and ready for rapid reawakening. See the Sleeper Ships episode though for more discussion of using freezing or other types of stasis for interstellar travel. What about other uses though? Emergency medicine is a possibility, and it's worth keeping in mind that those tiny little robots aren't magic. A repair crew can fix a damaged building, even rebuild it from scratch if needed, but they can't do it in the middle of a fire or hurricane, and you can't fix a dam when it just bursts during a flood. Your cells repair minor damage as is, but a majorly damaged cell is replaced by another dividing itself. Those little robots supplement the existing process by augmenting or fixing the bits of our internal repair mechanisms or speeding some processes up. Freezing someone so you can prepare major replacements is an option too, so too those bots can do repairs while you're just very cold, to slow damage. And while the ones in the regular human body probably wouldn't be designed to function at ultra-low temperatures, we probably could make some that were and put those in someone we froze. Or have some in the person already that could operate like that, This episode isn't about medical nanobots or self-replicating machines, but a point I have to make about those is that the same as we have tons of different species of microorganisms inside us of varying types, sizes, and purposes, you can build your nanobots the same way and probably would. The notion of a tiny and universal robot assembler is a popular one but probably overly simple. There's an advantage in specialized species of robots, such being the case you might have some that existed especially for trauma operations or during freezing. We said such robots largely made cryonics irrelevant even as it made us able to revive the frozen, but at the same time it makes it far easier. You could potentially be putting yourself on ice for a long weekend vacation, depending on how good the robots are, but then if they are that good, you've probably got easier stasis methods available in terms of avoiding boredom. That again is one of the reasons we often consider cryonics, to leapfrog through time and avoid boredom, but there are probably much easier ways to avoid boredom. For instance, given that a lot of what we think of as boredom is chemical, all those little robots able to repair cells could probably also play with the neurotransmitters responsible for boredom to just decrease it, one example of what we call neurohacking. Of course that presumably has its limits, the ability to remove the sensation of hunger doesn't remove hunger, and presumably being able to dial down the sensation of boredom doesn't alter boring circumstances. So this might be one reason why a civilization had large numbers of people go on ice, emerging every few years or centuries based on predefined triggers, like if that book series they loved was finally done. Hopefully they have a contingency trigger in case the author goes on ice too. We should also note that experiencing huge swaths of time beyond the normal lifespan is likely problematic beyond just figuring out how to extend youthful physiology indefinitely. I genuinely do not think anyone who had a full memory of having lived a million years could qualify as even vaguely human anymore beyond the biological sense. So why else might we use cryonics in mass? One example I'm fond of from fiction is the planet Hubris, from Dan Abnett's Eisenhorn series. The planet was settled by a colony ship full of frozen colonists, and they didn't realize till after arriving that the planet was on a wildly elliptical orbit that left it an iceball for 11 of its 29-month-long year. So they adapted their stasis pods to keep 99% of their population on ice during that period. As a sociological consequence of that, the caretaker population during the dormant season tends to live in places where the lightning is on all the time, a perpetual noon. I love the notion and the book, however it's not a terribly likely scenario for a planet. You could put artificial light and heating in place by many means, such as orbital meals around the world to add light when you need it, and that would seem a better approach than freezing your population. Though if your planet's orbit is elliptical enough, you might try the other approach, and if life evolved on such a world it might do that naturally. Artificial lighting and heating would seem the better path for technological species though, but not so much from a cost-savings perspective. Freezing people is rather cheap, in terms of the storage equipment and the coolant. It's not terribly expensive even now, and that's with most of the cost going into research and into the efforts to get someone frozen on short notice after their death. If a culture has refined this process, it might be about as easy as we often see in sci-fi, where you just get in the tube and pull the door shut after setting a timer. It might be the routine approach for ambulances to have freezers, or combat medics too, to just have some bag with an endothelmic chemical in it ready to freeze an injured person. Folks might have them in their own home and household robots may just haul you into your cryo vault if you were injured. Indeed it's quite possible such a cryo vault might not only be no larger than a bed, but no more expensive either. I really could imagine them as a standard feature on board spaceships or in people's normal homes, the ice closet as it were. There is a distinct cost for keeping things ultra-cold, but it goes down when you pack stuff in together. At a minimum, your cost drops with a cube square law as heat exchange is about total surface area, so a freezer 10 times bigger on each side has 10 squared or 100 times the heat loss on its expanded surface, but contains 10 cubed or 1000 times the storage space. So your coolant cost drops to a tenth in terms of cost per person. It's not really prohibitive even for individual pods in personal homes, and with only modern costs for coolant, a liquid nitrogen is dirt cheap. Still not free though, except in deep space. Now any spaceship is probably going to need some active parts that are kept warm, but you can keep them frozen for free, it is heating them to cost power. This is part of their appeal for interstellar space travel, we recently discussed interstellar trade, and one of the concepts we discussed was the interstellar cycler, giant spacecraft that are essentially on long circuits around a collection of stars that other ships rendezvous with. It would not be hard to imagine such ships having huge sections of them that were powered down and frozen during those voyages. You dock with the cycler, disembark, and check into your freezer, leaving a wake-up call when you're near your destination. Given the potential enormity of those vessels, they would qualify as civilizations all on their own and once it might spend much of their time dormant, like our example of hubris only even more so, spending decades asleep and perhaps a year awake. This implies the crew might be awake and the nominal passengers engaged in the trade efforts or traveling would be asleep, but it might be the other way around sometimes too. The Interstellar Cycler is a trade ship that makes a circuit of centuries between its many destinations, but we have another vessel we call the Gardener Ship that visits many worlds but only drops off colonists. The Garner ship used the premise that any realistic interstellar colony vessel needs to be essentially self-sufficient and able to manufacture any spare parts it needs from raw materials, and that means it can keep producing colonial gear, not just ferry the gear to a single planet one time. And given the length of the voyages, decades, they can breed up new colonists too. It is the opposite of the classic sleeper ship, you need your colonists awake for the journeys, living and manufacturing and having families, but the crew maybe not so much. Indeed, a big part of the crew's job is to make sure the ship stays on the same task from beginning to end. And as we saw in our Galactic Gardeners episode, that end might be a million years down the road as some garner ship leaves Earth and goes to ward after ward on its way to the Galactic Rim, selling thousands of new systems along the way. With a task that long, your biggest barrier to success is losing the will to continue, and that, more than boredom, might be why certain people or groups go on ice. They have a goal that would take a very long time to happen, and they want to be around to make sure it happens, so they go on ice for periods, waking up occasionally. Civilizations might sometimes do the same, after all it may be that the best way to achieve cultural stasis, if that's your goal, is to put the people in stasis. However, it is a dangerous play, which makes sense, hibernation is always a risky strategy in nature. Isolated on a colony ship, your sleeping crew would still be vulnerable to hijacking by anyone still awake be it colonists or whatever bit of the crew was awake, and the risk of such hijacking may be nearly as great as what risks the mission would be entailed by a generational drift of goals and ideals by not freezing. On the other hand, freezing part of your civilization while leaving part unfrozen places the unfrozen portion in charge of it. We usually assume that's intentional, the caretaker crew, who hopefully was selected for stability and trustworthiness, This is a gamble all on its own, but mutiny by your caretaker crew may be secondary to the risk of takeover from outside groups, Rebels in the Hill so to speak, or a foreign invader. If the majority of your population goes on ice, for whatever reason, whoever is left unfrozen is in a pretty good position to have things their way. Assuming they don't die anyway, after all if everyone was going on ice there's probably a good reason for it and one of the more obvious ones is that normal life won't be viable soon though why it would be viable down the road is unclear. A civilization that decided that it had damaged its planet, and was continuing to do so, might decide to go on ice while the world recovered, but probably would be better off devoting efforts to figure out how to fix that damage, or at least do less of it. You don't get much work done while you're asleep, and little new work gets done if most folks are, so if your civilization is full of bored people hoping to leapfrog forward and see new things, not many new things will develop if almost everyone is on ice. I suppose if there was a set cost of staying frozen, folks might have to sleep for as long as their personal wealth permits, the very richest might be able to go on stasis long enough to hang out at the restaurant at the end of the universe. This would be a rather bizarre economy that would give a whole new meaning to the phrase time is money. Trying to skip ahead into a bright new future, or the end of the world, is one motivation for going to sleep on ice, or to be a frozen corpse anyway. It's customary to call folks on ice asleep in fiction, but they are thoroughly dead and nowadays they are dead even before we freeze them. However, that might not be true either, which takes us to our last and maybe most plausible example of a frozen civilization. In Alistair Reynolds' classic sci-fi novel, Revelation Space, we have a faction of humanity that spends a lot of its time on near speed vessels, called light Lighthuggers, and spend most of its time in frozen stasis too. That may be a very common way to leapfrog forward through time, and those interstellar traders might be their own civilization, and the longest-lived one, and indeed we see an example of that in another of his novels, House of Sons, but I have a different example in mind today. In Revelation Space, the captain of one of those ships, the Nostalgia for Infinity, is infected with a virus that causes severe and gross mutation in flesh and machine, indeed it's really machines it seems to go after, people with cybernetic implants, and the captain is very much a cyborg. They put him on ice, and very cold too, down below a Kelvin, whereas most chronic freezing assumes to be more like 100 Kelvin, Incidentally, there is no set temperature you have to freeze people at. The two key bits are the Arrhenius equation, the formula for the temperature depends of reaction rates, of which decay is one such reaction, and the desire to keep the temperature constant, no fluctuations to cause cracking from repeated expansion and contraction. You could build a cryonic facility in Antarctica or Pluto, but you still need some active equipment to make sure the temperature stays put, no seasonal variance. Anyway, the captain is ultra-cold, appropriate since his faction's name is the Ultras, and yet he is still able to be conscious because his brain is a mix of the organic and the computer. We often discuss the notion of replacing damaged neurons in our minds with something more synthetic, and that seems to be the most preferred approach to mind uploading and augmentation as well, to simply replace our billions of neurons and their connecting synapses gradually as one starts wearing down. A person who went that path probably could be placed in stasis and remain conscious in whole apart if those synthetic neurons were able to keep firing at subzero temperatures and could function as the brain without the rest. Indeed, there are many advantages to computing or thinking at low temperatures, as we discussed in the Civilizations at the End of Time series. This raises an interesting option, not just that those on ice might be able to continue in some dreamlike slumber. But the civilizations that decide to embrace cold computing and post-biological existences, as we often look at in our Civilizations at the End of Time series, might make the transition by freezing themselves. I think a lot of folks would prefer to keep their body around if they went digital anyway, as opposed to the usual suggestion it be destroyed in the upload or discarded afterward, and so I could easily imagine finding some ward full of nothing but frozen tomb vaults, full of computers of minds expanded beyond their bodies, with a frozen body in the center of each one, their inhabitants slumming away in artificial virtual wards, or very awake and possibly existing at a far higher subjective time rate. Such a frozen civilization might not be waiting around at all, not pausing out of boredom, but got onto ice to gain the advantage of ultra ultra-core computing efficiencies and be very busy indeed. One of the most common applications suggested for cryonics is as a way to extend lifespans, and as we saw today it really only does that in a short-term context of potentially letting us take advantage of such technologies in the early 21st century when they were probably more of a late 21st or early 22nd century sort of thing and outside this specific period of history, we won't see freezing people as a way of extending life. There's an excellent video, waiting for immortality, that does look at cryonics as well as some other methods that might be more useful for extending life like cloning, age reversal, and mind uploading over on CuriosityStream. CuriosityStream has thousands of fun and educational videos, but they have also partnered up with us at Nebula, our Streamy Award-nominated streaming service, to offer Nebula's content along with their own, if you sign up with the link in the episode description. That means you will not only get CuriosityStream and at a 26% discount, but also lets you catch SFIA episodes early and without ads, and help support our show while you're doing it, as well as see our exclusive Coexistence with alien series and other great content from our sibling shows. Again, you get a year of both Curiosity Stream and Nebula for less than $15, get to support the show and see our episodes early, and get all of that for less than $15 by using the link in the episode's description. Last year I got into the habit of doing not just one episode a week on Thursdays, but also a monthly bonus episode and a monthly live stream, usually on the middle and final Sunday of each month respectively, and I have decided to keep that up this year even though I'll be devoting a lot of time to writing a book after years of audience demand. I am loosely calling that mid-month bonus episode Sci-Fi Sundays for now, as I've noticed I tend to write them more with a focus on science fiction tropes and concepts than the average episode. This year's force will be Machine Overlords and Post-Discontent Societies, on Sunday, January 17th. Then we will return next week to the Alien Civilization series for a look at Oceanic Aliens, before looking at Zero Gravity Civilizations the week after that. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel. And if you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.